Good afternoon. This is Richard Shu, host of Shu Untied. Today, I'm very pleased and honored to have as, as my guest Dr. Tom Fogarty, who's a medical doctor, an inventor, an entrepreneur, venture capitalist, wine owner as well. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. So, Dr. Fogarty, let me ask by ask you by let me start by asking you, um, you know, your legendary and historic career. You've done so many different things. What are sort of the two or three things that kind of leap out at, you know, when, when you look back at your career that kind of really leap out? Uh, probably the biggest thing is that I was very fortunate uh, in many ways, despite the fact that uh, at a very early age my father died hmm. and uh, my mother was left with three children to raise. Uh which is very difficult in those periods because it was during a depression. Wow. So uh, she had to work. And uh, if we wanted anything extra as children, uh, we had to work for it. Hmm. And uh, so I started working at a very, very young age, um, doing odd jobs, Mostly within the neighborhood, delivering newspapers, mowing lawns, shoveling snow, whatever I could do to get a little extra money. Uh, I was fortunate uh, that I was able to get a full-time, part-time job right out of the eighth grade. Hmm. Now, what does that mean? Well, in those days and age, uh, uh, if you got a job at a not-for-profit facility uh, you could be very young there's no laws and so you could start working uh, full-time but part-time because mm-hmm. you had to go to school so anyway I got a job in a hospital as a uh, essentially an orderly mm-hmm. uh, doing very menial tasks some not so pleasant but I got paid 18 cents an hour <laughs> uh, <laughs> But if you worked hard enough and long enough, uh, you'd make money. And it would be consistent rather than haphazard and intermittent. So uh, it was it was an opportunity. And I was able to work myself up uh, to a better level. I started out doing things like cleaning oxygen tents that the patients used, cleaning stomach pumps. Uh, delivering oxygen tanks to the rooms, things like that. It was called central supply. and You learned how to clean uh, instruments, uh, devices, uh, run the autoclave. And uh, then I got an opportunity to run the autoclave in the operating room uh, and clean the instruments that were used in operations. And... Uh, Work my way up until I become a scrub technician. First, uh, you you would you would be a, a circulating nurse in the operating room, run and get things for the surgeon and the nurses that needed things that weren't in the room, or get things out of the shelves in the room and make sure they were open properly so they were still sterile, mm-hmm. and put them on the uh, operating tables. So. 
physicians took an interest in me and became one of them became my mentor, which is really the start of my real interest in being a surgeon. Uh, prior to that time, I thought my occupation would be a professional boxer because <laughs> I was pretty good at boxing. <clears throat> and I, <clears throat> I won virtually most of my bouts. And uh, they were either backyard bouts that paid money, uh, which you could do at that time and still be an amateur. But anyway, that was a source of another bit of extra money. This mentor of mine finally convinced me that uh, I should quit doing that. I used my brain for something else other than get it knocked out. Hmm. So... Uh, he helped me along through my entire professional career, and I'm sure if it hadn't been for him, I don't know what I'd be doing. Uh, probably not a surgeon. But anyway, he helped me get through school by providing job opportunities. I became his personal scrub technician, meaning wherever he would have an operation, whenever he had an operation, I would go with him and make sure Hand the, I could hand the instruments to him, make sure that all the things were there that he needed. So anyway, it, it was a real opportunity, and mm. I'll be forever grateful for that. So it it, kind of, it taught me a lot. Now tell me a little bit about the Fogarty catheter. Obviously, you invented yeah. that early <clears throat> on. Tell me a little bit about the genesis of that and how that came to be. Yeah, that came from my observation when I was a scrub technician very early that when there was a blood clot that occluded uh, an organ or your vessels, primarily your legs, that there were three operations. One, the first attempt to remove it. The next day, it was obvious it didn't work. The patient would be back for a second operation. And then there's often a third operation where uh, essentially because it didn't work the second time, they had to do an amputation. Hmm. So at that time, 50% of the people who had a blood clot had to have an amputation. And 50% died after these multiple surgeries and never recovered. And most had a very, very weak heart because of the prominence of uh, rheumatic heart disease in the United States. Mm -hmm. Now that's gone now, so that kind of blood clot is not as common, most certainly, because we eliminated disease. So prevention is really the secret to avoiding a lot of the disease that we have. And the drugs and the therapies that have become available to prevent that have really been very valuable. Uh, not only in prolonging life, but making life more pleasant in our later years. Uh, so all these things that... Uh, so what was the invention exactly? Well, well, in response to that, uh, observing that these things weren't working, which was obvious to someone that wasn't contaminated with the background of, well, you can't do it because it won't work. Uh, the My mentor, Dr. Cranley, turned to me and said, Tom, you, you, you're bright. Let's, let's think of a better way to do this. I'll help you. 
So I did. I, I thought of the balloon catheter. It was one of the first things that came to my mind. Why don't we put, open, make a small incision, put a catheter in that small incision in the artery and thread it up and down so that once we get the deflated balloon catheter up through the clot, we'll inflate the balloon and withdraw it and bring the clot out. Hmm. And he made me do everything <coughs> that we're required to do now. Uh, we did the, the, uh, I did the bench testing, cadaver testing, sterility testing, uh, and he observed what I'd done. I showed him what I've done. He he uh, developed a dog lab, one of the first in a private hospital in in the country, as far as I know. And uh, I got to use a dog lab, simulate the procedure. He observed all these, helped me get access. And uh, within six weeks, we used it. Now, so you invented this even before you were a doctor, you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. I was a student. Right. A pre-med and medical student. Hmm. So what made you decide to, you know, patent it and start a company? How did that come about? Him. I didn't start a company, but he told me, Tom, this is valuable. Uh, uh, if you don't patent it, everybody will just copy it, so patent it. So... I was, he put me in touch with an attorney that was willing to take it hmm. and uh, pay him later. Uh, I paid him a little bit as we went along, but most of it I paid him after the patent was secured and everything was in order. Hmm. And then licensed it to a company through an introduction by another mentor, Dr. Albert Starr who was in Oregon, and I went to Oregon to, uh, to for my um, internship. Hmm. And I met him there. I'd, I'd previously developed the catheter when I was still in Cincinnati. I went to Oregon for the internship. He knew what I was doing um, and started using it and then introduced me to a company called Edwards Life Sciences. Hmm. Uh, uh, the that was once again the benefit of a mentor that recognized the value in something that I was doing mm. and allowed me to get a manufacturer, mm. uh, make an agreement with a manufacturer, and they made his valve, the Star Edwards valve. Mm. So, so by the time that happened, had you already become a medical doctor by then? I'd been a, 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 a medical doctor, uh, got my MD when I graduated, from uh, med school hmm. and went on to my internship uh, at the University of Oregon where I met Dr. Starr. Hmm. So obviously you've gone on to invent many other things and you've had a career as a doctor. Do you think of yourself more as a doctor who invents things on the side or do you think of yourself as more of an inventor entrepreneur who happens to be a doctor? Uh, a doctor that invents things. Mm -hmm. That's how I view myself. I'm not a scientist. I don't view myself as a scientist. I'm a, a technologist and a technician. And really, 
and surgery, the discipline, the better technician you are, the better the operator you are, and the better the surgeon you are. Now, you need judgment all the way along. I mean, you have to make the proper diagnosis. You have to operate on the uh, right patient. Uh, and, and getting there, you, you are somewhat of a scientist, but for a surgeon, I truly believe you're more of a technologist uh, than a scientist. Now, what I did was so simple, I don't know how you could refer to it as science. Mm. I mean, a balloon's a kid's toy. Mm. It's just observe, what could you use that balloon for? Mm. Well, would you consider that to be sort of your greatest invention, or was there something else that you, I know you've invented a lot of different things, but which one kind of sticks out as sort of your favorite, well, shall we say? Well, no, I think that's it, because it led to the field of less invasive procedures. Before that, the concept of what we were taught as uh, training surgeons, the bigger the incision, the bigger the surgeon. Now, that came about because you had to see. And if you're trying to make tiny little incisions, you couldn't see as much. <clears throat> so they'd always admonish you if you made a small incision. Make it bigger, you have to see. Uh, and that was a concept that was drilled into us as, as trainees. So to make a small incision, and uh, it just did not make sense. Also, we were taught if you touched the inside of an artery with an instrument, it would immediately plug up or caught. And I was putting a catheter. We were putting a catheter in. I couldn't do the procedure, Dr. Cranley the very first procedure, uh, and continued to do them. But uh, the vascular surgery was just beginning. The ability to operate on a peripheral artery or an artery was something new. We were just learning. But what we were taught, do not manipulate the inside of the artery because it will plug up or make a cot and it won't work. So it, it was really not uh, accepted. In fact, I, we couldn't get the, art, art, uh, the article published. Uh, it was turned down by three of the most prestigious medical journals in the United States. Hmm. So from the time we did the first case until the time we were able to get it published took five years, hmm. uh, which... Uh, just it really does kind of uh, it taught me the lesson the biggest problem of innovation is getting acceptance of that new technology so it's displacing the old technology the old cultures the old uh, uh, things that you were taught and uh, it's always a barrier. So when you innovate or develop something new, you displace old. And that's a challenge. And I, you can understand why. A surgeon can spend you know, 20 years getting to train in a given specialty. 
And by the time you finish your training, if there's something comes along that's going to replace what you trained as many years to do, it's not easy. <laughs> now, let me ask you. But it's necessary. So you have to continue to learn and accept new and better things even after you're trained. If you don't, you're not going to be optimal because technology is changing so fast and better technology is coming along, you have to adapt to it. So tell me a little bit what you're doing now with the Fogarty Institute of Innovation. What are you trying to do? What are you doing here? Well, what, what I'm trying to do is replicate the things that I, in retrospect, have come to realize what made me have the ability to do what I've done. Mm -hmm. And essentially, it was uh, uh, learning from others, having good mentors, uh, and uh, that's harder and harder to do in this current age because uh, of a whole bunch of different reasons. One, one is the multiple regulations, the uh, amount of oversight that you have. Regulations and oversight are just absolutely necessary. But overregulation. And too much oversight really can deter new concepts. And so uh, what the Institute intends to do and has done is create an environment where some of these issues that deter innovation are eliminated. In other words, an environment where somebody that is bright, somebody that has a valuable concept or idea, is encouraged to move forward. And that, when you have a highly structured environment, that's difficult. It, it's really difficult. So, uh, you know, I, I love schools, but schools do have a disadvantage in that they tend to become highly structured. And that's true of uh, the medical schools. Uh, it's true of our training programs. Uh, so you have to understand if, if you have highly unstructured environments, you don't have much leeway. And so they need leeway, but oversight is very important. You just don't let them go off in different directions. You just need uh, oversight that's understanding oversight that's based on uh, prior experiences, experienced people that have been through it. They know what is needed to innovate. If you never know what's needed to innovate, you'll never innovate. So we want to create an environment where you can really express the necessary components of innovation. Well, Dr. Fogarty, it's been a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your taking the time to tell me about your historic career. If you do decide to write that book, you'll definitely have to come back and tell me about it. Okay, I'll do that. This is Richard Chu and Tom Fogarty. Thanks. Thanks.